This morning our text is going to be from John chapter 8, so let's turn there together. <clears throat> John chapter 8, and probably in your Bibles you'll see there, even attached to the beginning of chapter 8, the very end of John chapter 7, verse 53, which we'll read today as well. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Father, as we come to your word, we do so with reverence. We do so um, also with a lack of complete understanding. And so it's for that reason that we ask your help today. Um, we oftentimes will take your word and run with it, doing our own thing, uh, seeking our own will rather than yours. And so, Father, correct that rebellious spirit in us. Use your word to do that. Convict us of our sins. But also we pray that you would lead us to the truth, that you would show us your truth, that you would show us your Son, our Savior, here in these pages. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So as I prepared this message, I thought a lot about uh, some of the crazy internet challenges that are out there. Uh, you know, you guys remember the ice bucket challenge that was for uh, ALS, which was a very good and very successful thing. But there, and that was a good example, but there are also some bad examples like the cinnamon challenge where you just eat a spoonful of cinnamon, which I don't know why anyone would do. It, it turns out about like you think it would. Um, but this past summer, there was one called the Don't Judge Me Challenge. And uh, it's where people would, on purpose, become ugly, in quotes. And they would, what they would do is they would take a picture of themselves as that person that they deemed as ugly, and then they would clean themselves up and take sort of a glamour shot of themselves. And for whatever reason, it was showing that they you shouldn't judge them. I don't know why. It was a to me it was a towering testimony of the growing narcissism in our culture today, and everybody's a celebrity celebrity in their own little world. Um, but what hit me the most, I think, was was in their attempt to cast a negative light on this judgmentalism. What they actually did was condone it very loudly by making value judgments as to what they saw was ugly, and what they would all I'm almost across the board because they're uh, teenagers and they all do what each other other one does and so their examples of ugly would be big lips or and they would put lipstick all around their face or freckles dotted on their face or glasses or they would wear like a bald thing which kind of hit me personally uh they would wear thrift store clothes they would paint a unibrow on their uh forehead they would paint wrinkles in their faces and this was the ugly version of themselves so essentially they were judging people who have those things naturally which, of course, contradicted the whole message of what they were trying to do out of the gate, which is fairly typical of the world. This mantra, don't judge me, is actually becoming a, more of a rallying cry, more and more, for people to indulge in whatever behavior they deem fit. And don't judge me because I'll do as I please. Those who use this motto regularly, of course, make judgments on those around them and the thoughts and statements of those people around them. And so I guess the point of this is to understand that it's impossible on some level to not make judgments. 
We do this all the time. And actually, I would say that it's a survival mechanism that we have. Someone walks into a gas station with a ski mask. I'm making a judgment on that person. He's probably not there for good things, even though he may have just forgot to take a ski mask off. But most of the time, we judge to prop ourselves up. I'm better than that person. I mean, look at them. And that's kind of what we do. We're all guilty of this to one degree or another because we all like to feel good about ourselves by looking down on other people. It's just part of who we are, and it's part of the sinful condition that we all struggle with at varying degrees. And so the encounter that we have here in the text today with Jesus and the Pharisees and this nameless female adulterer gives us some insight, I think, into our own judgmental tendencies. But more importantly, it gives us insight into our own sinfulness and therefore our need of a Savior. And thankfully, we find him here on these pages as well. And so we'll consider two points today, that we are the Pharisees doing the judging, and we are the woman who is being forgiven by Christ. And so with that, let's go to the text. Let's stand together as we read. We'll read John 7, verse 53, along with chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman such women. So what do you say? This they had said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So, for a bit of background on this text, you probably notice in your Bible, at least to one degree or another, that it says something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include this text, or there's maybe a little footnote that says that. Something to that manner is probably printed in your Bible, maybe not. And this text has historically been called the Pericope Adulterae, which is not, it's only said in like, White Towers, we don't have to call it that around here. But that just means that this is a text that kind of stands out among the other scriptures because this text is not included in the earliest manuscripts that we have of this book. It's a disputed text as to whether or not it actually belongs to the body of scripture. And there have been lots and lots of pages written about this and other passages like them. This isn't the only one. 
And after some personal study and some consideration and asking some of my friends who, who are also pastors, I've come to a similar conclusion that John Calvin said a long time ago, and he, he wrote this in his commentary on John, and I'll read it for you. This is his quote. He says, It is plain enough that this passage was unknown anciently to Greek church to the Greek churches, and some conjecture that it has been brought from some other place and inserted here. But as it is, as has always been received by the Latin churches, and is found by in many many old Greek manuscripts, and contains noting or nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. And so what John Calvin is essentially saying, this matches up with the teaching of the apostles. It matches up with the teaching of this apostle, John. It matches up with everything that we know about Jesus, everything we know about the Pharisees as well. And so, from all appearances, it seems to be Scripture, and so we should teach it as such. And so that's why we're doing that this morning. While this passage is disputed, and I have many brothers in Christ that wouldn't preach it, uh, I'll come down with the majority of the Reformers and the Puritans, modern theologians, and we're going to hear it this morning. We're going to preach it this morning. So I felt the need to say that because there is some dispute there, and it says something in your Bible concerning that more than likely, and I think it's important for us to note that. <clears throat> and and as far as the timeline is concerned here, I'm not sure if this passage follows the timeline in the Feast of Booths, like where we were in John chapter 7, but it might. There's a definite cause to believe that this next the next passage, the rest of John chapter 8, definitely occurs in the Feast of Booths, and so it makes sense that it might have happened in, in that timeline. But again, regardless of the timeline, there is much here that we can gather concerning our own sin and concerning our Savior Jesus. And so that's why we're going to preach it, and that's why we're going to learn from it. And so with that, the first point, we are the Pharisees doing the judging. So look there at verse 3. Verse 3, so Jesus is coming, he comes back to this temple area, and he's teaching, and in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst. They're in the middle of everybody. One commentator actually places this at the Feast of Tabernacles and suggests that the adulterous act probably took place in one of these tabernacles. Remember I told you that the, they would live out in the streets and they would construct these like grass huts for themselves? And so we are told in verse 4 that she's actually caught in the very act of adultery when they bring her before, before Jesus and before everyone there. So whatever the case is, we also know that these men who brought this woman to Jesus brought her with definite intention of snaring him. They probably had actually had very little concern for the sin of the woman and had much more concern about trapping Jesus somehow, some way, even though they tried before and were completely miserable at doing so. And to be clear, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, Deuteronomy 22, 22, you want to look those up, both of these verses contain direct prohibitions against adultery, which we also see in the Ten Commandments, so that's nothing new, but in those prohibitions in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, both of them demand that the penalty for adultery be death. And so the Pharisees weren't altogether wrong in this. 
It doesn't really say anywhere that stoning has to be that form of death. But Rome was the sovereign of Israel at the time. They actually controlled uh, Jerusalem and Israel and everything around it, frankly. And But they allowed Israel to still enact their civil laws, those that were handed down from in, during the Exodus that we have in the book of Exodus and so forth. And so Israel is attempting to keep those laws the best they could under Roman rule. And so that's what's going on here. The exact death met, or the method of death varied throughout the Old Testament, but stoning was mostly used in the time of Jesus for such a crime and for many other types of crimes. If you remember, they tried to pick up stones to stone Jesus because he said he was God. They didn't like that either. And so here they've brought this woman before him. And what do they say to Jesus after they brought this, this, this woman before? Now, he was, she was caught in the middle of the act of adultery. And I love verse 5. They're getting ready now to educate our Lord and Savior. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And I'm always fascinated in the Gospels as we read these accounts that Jesus, being the author of the law, being the one who was around from the beginning, who has no beginning, is being questioned by his creatures as if he were on trial and as if he was under their authority somehow. It's just always been fascinating to me. And in verse 6, we're told that they said this again to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they're trying to trick him. And what's the trick? I mean, we kind of understand this from the, the amount of time that we've spent in the book of John and we've had, and the interactions that we've seen with the Pharisees. Because if he sets the girl free, what happens? Then he doesn't wish to follow the law or he thinks it's unimportant, which is a trap because Jesus is a Jewish person. He's there at the Feast of Booths. He's been at every feast since. He follows the law. He follows all the tabernacle and all the ceremonies. He follows this to a T. It's a trap because for a Jewish person, the law is what to them? It's who they are. It's their very identity. And so for Jesus to say, no, she can go free, is for him to say, I don't care about your laws. I'm not even Jewish. Well, if he condones killing the girl, sure, kill her. That's what the law says. Then he may come off as heartless. Or brutal, which is the exact opposite persona that we've seen from him so far. We haven't seen him do that. We've seen him tenderly care for people just like this woman. And so you might think that Jesus is in a bit of a catch-22 here. What do you do? If you do one thing, you're wrong. If you do the other thing, you're wrong. And the Pharisees probably think that they have him. Finally, they have him nabbed. So what does he do? Nothing. He turns around, and he kneels down, and he starts writing something unknown on the ground. He ignores them. And just quickly here, I want to say this. There's a lot of speculation as to what he's writing here. We don't know. Nobody does. I've heard entire sermons pattered around what the preacher thought that he was writing, and that's just wrong because no one knows what he wrote. We aren't told, so it's not that important. What is important, however, and what we can't miss, what is Jesus doing to the Pharisees? He's ignoring them. What they're saying has no bearing. They're just simply trying to trap him. He turns around. He blows them off. He's not going to pay attention to them. The Pharisees and scribes 
who walk around high and mighty as if they are some very important people and they're going to convict people just by their mere presence. I mean, look how good they are. I'm ashamed. They are shrugged off by a carpenter's son from Bethlehem as he turns around and writes on the ground and ignores them. And so let's look at this. We tend to be like these Pharisees sometimes, don't we? And I would say that we tend to be like the Pharisees, not only as we would be the one that's bringing the adulterous woman in front of Jesus and putting her on display, but we would also be the ones that are attacking Jesus and questioning him. We might, we might be like them in the fact that we try to trick our Lord, as it were, offering him ultimatums rather than requests. Or we attempt to lure him somehow with our false piety. Lord, if you'll just do such and such, then I will be a better person. Then I'll do better in my life. We lure him with our false goodness and our piety, hoping that he'll grant us some sort of divine wish. If, if I just had whatever it is, if I just had that, then I would be able to serve you, Lord. Maybe you can help me out here. Or just wait till I get to this point in my life. I heard this a lot when I was younger and, and uh, sharing the gospel with college students. Well, I just want to get to this point in my life, and then I'm going to serve the Lord. Then my life is his, but right now I'm having too much fun to do that. Or we want to serve as the Lord's judges, just like these Pharisees might serve as his judge. We preside over his judgments and the things that he has chosen for us and for our lives or for the lives of others, and we declare his judgments unjust. Lord, I have no idea what you were thinking here. You should have consulted me on this. I don't know why the Lord does it this way. It doesn't make any sense to me. I've said things like this. I don't know if you have, but I know I have. So when he stooped to write something down, they must have thought he was crazy. I mean, who does he think he is? That he's not going to answer my question. And he's not going to bow to my wishes and my demands. He answers to me and because my will for my life is first and foremost in his creation. And let's just be honest with ourselves. We, are, we often march right up to the throne of grace with the same self-important attitude as these Pharisees. And we expect the king of glory to show his cards and to play right into our hand. But he doesn't, thankfully. Or maybe we look at the acts of others and we turn the judgment on the, the woman and we appoint ourselves as judge over their character and their acts. And I'm going to talk a lot about judging others. And so I want to say this. Many times in Scripture, we are told as believers to judge the character and the lives of others. Why? Mostly for the well-being of the church. We have to do this because the well-being of the local church depends on the efforts of its members and its leadership to shepherd and to discipline those who continue to act as if they don't know Jesus. And so that is a very important function of the church. And so don't hear me saying that the church shouldn't be doing this because churches that don't are, are not healthy churches. However, when the standard for those interactions with other people becomes our own good behavior, that's where we cross over the line. Jesus makes sure over and over in the Gospels that we understand 
the extent. If we choose to follow the law, if we choose to make that our standard, I'm a good person because I do everything right, then he makes sure that we understand the extent to which we should do so. So turn quickly with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you ever think that you're good at following the law, read Matthew chapter 5. Be reminded that you're not. This is the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is walking through a list of to-dos that the Pharisees have thrown on the people. Some of them are biblical to-dos and reminding them that just when you think you just when you think you've got this one nailed, you actually don't at all. So look at verse look at chapter five, verses twenty seven through thirty. We'll read this quickly concerning uh, adultery. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. That's true. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. So if we really want to dissect someone's sin, if the Pharisees really wanted to throw the adultery charge at this woman, then what should they do first? They should start with their own sin, right? They should examine their own hearts. And they're going to quickly see that even with something thou shalt not commit adultery, they're going to quickly come up short because you can commit adultery just by having a lustful thought. So when it comes to judging others, and Jesus goes even through murder and says just by being angry we can murder someone. And so we never, we should never think that, oh yeah, that list of things, I've done all of those. Because when it comes to our judging others, we'll quickly see that if we hold them to any standard other than the Word of God, we make ourselves the lawmaker, which that's idolatry. It's the first commandment. And if we hold them to the Word of God, what does that cause us to do? It should cause us to humble ourselves due to our own inability to keep it outside of Jesus Christ. And so it causes our heart to be right all of a sudden in going to that person. But we are the Pharisees at times. And I think more often than not, we in the church judge the lost world even for its sinfulness. When we know full well, as we read scriptures, that it's the only thing they're capable of. So why do we judge them? We're not their judge. And you've heard me saying this, and you've heard me sound this gong many times, and you're going to hear it again. The lost need Jesus. They don't need a little instruction book from us on how to live. They need the only one who ever lived right. And it's not you. It's not me. Jesus did. They need him. They don't need to live better. They need Jesus. And so that's what we should be telling them. He will save them when they call upon their name, his name. Not when they, not when we tattle on them for some kind of little sin. I mean, if the Pharisees really wanted salvation for this woman, they should have went about it a little bit different way. But instead, no, they wanted death for her, for her sin. And so our prayer should be for the lost. What should our prayer be for the lost? Lord, help them to act better. No, Lord, change their hearts. Let, let our words be filled with compassion. Let our words be flooded with the gospel. 
because the gospel is their only hope, not our righteousness, because we have none. We need Jesus. And so as the Pharisees, what happens to us when we come to Jesus with this judgmental attitude? We're going to come face to face, face to face with his next words, aren't we? He without sin cast the first stone. Again, let's be careful with this because I've heard this talked about many ways. This is not a direction or not a command from our Lord to forego all judging inside the church because the church functions rightly by the use of correct discipline, shepherding its flock. However, this, what our Lord Jesus is doing here is a very passive-aggressive attack on hypocrisy, which the Pharisees happen to specialize in. Us too. We have to be careful because oftentimes we're ready to throw the stone when the stone should actually be aimed at us. And so compassion, gospel-centered mercy, these are the things that should be on our lips when we deal with people who are in sin, when we deal with the lost, when we deal with one another. Compassion, mercy, the gospel. We should bathe others in the grace and mercy that Jesus offers rather than our judgments. And we'll likely win many more that way. We'll stay on the right side of hypocrisy at the same time, and that's where we want to be. And so while we are the Pharisees, that brings us to the next point. We are also this woman who is forgiven by our Lord Jesus. Jesus bends back down to write again after he says this. And I, I love this from Jesus because he's never been shy to just go at the Pharisees, ever. He's never been shy to do it. He walked in the temple and just started throwing things. He rightly And he was right to do so. But this time, he quietly stoops down and writes. And what happens? He stoops back down. They start to leave one by one. The older ones leave first, probably because they have the weightiest of sins to consider. Steve Brown, who's a radio personality, many of you guys have heard him probably. He often says when referring to uh, youth and uh, when he was my seminary professor, when referring to us as students, he would say, you're not old enough and you haven't sinned big enough to understand. And so I kind of get that from what he's saying here. These older ones were leaving first because they understood the weight of their sin more than the younger ones. But eventually, all of them leave. And there stands this woman, an adulterer, caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus, the Lord of all creation, her judge and her savior. Imagine the shame she must have felt, and I can't imagine, just almost being completely undone. If she had any idea who Jesus was, she probably would have wanted to throw herself on the ground, unable to lift her head. She probably felt that way anyway. It wasn't just her and Jesus standing there. Remember, Jesus was teaching in the temple. And so I know that I've felt that way. And considering the sin... Considering any sin that we have, I mean, think about it, brothers and sisters. Think about the sins that plague us, the ones that we've been working at since we were new believers. Whatever it is, pride, arrogance, anger, lust, whatever it is that plagues you, you know you're going to sin again, and you have to face your Lord. 
and there's that time and there's that shame that we all feel feel and there's that guilt that we all feel that we feel like maybe this time he's not going to forgive me maybe this time he's going to come down on me and we feel that because we want to believe actually we have to earn our salvation sometimes those times when we're not believing the gospel this woman knew exactly what she deserved she deserved to die she knew that because she not only defiled herself but she defiled the marriage covenant which was made before the Lord and broke at least one marriage, maybe two. And so here she stands before her maker. And he says to her, where are they? Your judges, where are they? Is there anyone to condemn you? There's no one, Lord. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. And understand what's going on here. Our Lord is not condoning her sin. He's not compromising with the law somehow. This is a pardon, which he alone is capable of doing. He is. This is a pardon of her sin. But what is it also? It's a call to repentance. Go and sin no more. Go and turn around. Don't do this again. A pardon and a call to repentance is the absolute best any of us who deserve death could hope for. In our sin, we deserve death and judgment. We deserve to be stoned for our sins. We deserve for our Maker to cast every stone upon us. Instead, He Himself was cast upon a cross and nailed to it so that we wouldn't have to face His wrath and judgment. And so, He could look at us and say, Go and sin no more. And in fact, understand this, brothers and sisters, the very fact that he could say that to a woman, the fact, or any of us, that he could say, go and sin no more, gives us hope. Because what does that mean in Christ? That we can actually go and sin no more. We have that option. As unbelievers, we didn't have that option. We could not go and sin no more. We only could sin. We could only rebel. We could only go against our Maker. But as as people of his, as his people, we can go and sin no more. And that is, that's a great message. We are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We are no longer completely unable to please God. But now in him, we can actually do the right thing and actually not do the wrong thing. That's good. We no longer stand, stand condemned. Wretched people that we are. Who has delivered us from this body of death? Thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ there is there no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We stand not condemned. We can go and sin no more. We walk away from our exchange with Jesus clean. That's incredible. We walk away from our Lord able to repent, able to turn away from our sin, and able to walk with him hand in hand, able to walk with one another without judging one another. That's fantastic. It's a glorious blessing. It's a gift of his grace that we might walk with him hand in hand. And so, brothers and sisters, what's the instruction for us? Let this flavor our interactions, everything that we do. Because when it does, we won't come to our Lord or each other with accusations and with judgments. 
but we'll come with affirmations and compassion. We'll no longer offer wrath to those in our path, but we'll offer mercy. We'll see ourselves as the least deserving of all, the most helped of all. And when you see yourself as that, sky's the limit. You're able to help lots of people. You only want to help people. You only want to, to talk mercy and grace and compassion to people. So let uh, let that color our interactions with each other in the church, absolutely, but also let that color our interactions with the lost. Let us, rather than taking stones with us to bury them, that's our inclination, that's what we want to do, but let us instead carry words of mercy, words of grace. Let us give them the very gospel of Jesus Christ, which can ensure that they are able to go and sin no more as well. Let's go, damn it, prayer. Jesus, we stand sometimes as your judge, or we would like to, but we don't. We are just like the Pharisees oftentimes. And so forgive us. Forgive us when we judge you, when we judge each other, when we would stand and judge the world. Because we can't do any of those things. Lord, we stand as this woman condemned. We stand as this woman guilty, deserving of death, but you tell us to go and sin no more. And Lord, we can't even do that without you. So we pray that you would help us. Help us to go and sin no more. Help us in our unbelief. We struggle with it still. Help us understand the teachings of your word, which if we follow it, we will go and sin no more. And so help us to do that as a church, as your people. Help us to flavor our words, to give our words to the lost, and help them to be words of mercy, grace, and compassion. Help us to share the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.